Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Owen O'Sullivan and today's guest on the show is John Haggis Hagerty, the singer in the Cork band Emperor of Ice Cream. They're one of the great what-ifs in Irish music, I think. A band you kind of hear listed after the likes of Franken Walters and Sultans of Ping. And yet they never released a debut album. They were signed to Sony Records, toured the UK, seemed on the cusp, but then, well, nothing really happened. There were a couple of EPs and videos, but they seemed like one of the last acts in Irish music. Until, that is, earlier this year when Ed Parrott talked to some of the band members for the Irish Examiner series B-Side, The Lee-Side. It's a really, really brilliant read and you should probably go have a read of that before you start the podcast. I highly recommend it. Um, But I would say that since, you know, I work with the Irish Examiner. But that feature led the four members to rekindle their relationship. Haggis from his base in Waterford, where he plays with his own group, Band of Clouds. Graham Finn, who lives in New York and plays with August Wells. Eddie Butt, a graphic designer who I work with in the Irish Examiner. And Colm Young, who also lives in New York and joined Base Odyssey post-Emperor of Ice Cream. Since then, they've released two singles, re-recorded more tracks, and plan to finally release their debut album almost 30 years on. So it was great to talk to John and get the lowdown on how that all happened and what it all entails. And before we get to that, we had to dip into the Cork nostalgia bubble from Sir Henry's, of course, and Nirvana to the scene itself. So enjoy the chat with John. It was done a couple of weeks ago, but I've been busy since then actually uprooting from Cork to move to Dublin. So it was nice to instantly dip back into this chat. And if you stick around to the end of the conversation, you can hear the Emperor's latest single, Every One Looks So Fine, which is released by FIFA Records. We started off the chat by talking about the late 1980s, early 1990s, when John and his pals would head down to West Cork and Connolly's of Lep, which is now run by Sam McNichol. Oh, his dad and his mum were fantastic. Cause like when we were about 16, I think we used, there used to be a, a bus would leave the Grand Parade in Cork and come down and a guy, a young kid called Emmett from Cork was putting on punk gigs. And every maybe once a month on a Saturday, you get on the bus at four or five o'clock, go down, go to a, the gig in the Barras and then come home that night. But then a few years later, we got to play down there, got to play loads of gigs. And when you'd arrive, um, you do the sound check and then um, Sam's mum would come out with pizza for the band and we'd all sit around and eat and then play the gig. And when you finish the gig on the desk, he used to have a little tape machine that was part of the desk. So when you finished the gig, when you were leaving, he'd give you a tape of your gig. And when you were 18, that was just on 17, 18. That was just unreal, you know, to to go home and be able to listen to yourself. Because, um, you know, it was nearly like doing a demo or something, you know. They were always so nice to everyone that arrived down there. They were amazing. Was that as far away as you would have been um, looking when you were starting out? Like, oh, geez, if we can get a couple of gigs down in West Cork and bars or in uh, Connolly's of Lep, that'll that'll do us fine. You know, we'll be grand with that. Was that like uh, as high as your expectations were back in the early 90s? Uh, yeah, I, I never really had any expectations in music except from when I was young, myself, Eddie Butt and Eddie Kiley, who, who has always managed the band and Eddie, who plays the bass in the band, we used uh, always hang around with each other, but like Eddie, we used kind of have band rooms around the city when we started playing when we were 15, 16. And uh, you'd kind of before you st- if, if somebody was late for practice, you'd go up and you'd sit in and listen to a metal band or you'd go up and you'd listen to a punk band. And then we'd start practicing. And sometimes you weren't really a band. You just had a band room just to go and play together. So it was more just about sitting around. But 
Um, we used to go up to Canturk to where the Shanks were and we used to go up and catch them playing gigs. Uh, we used to get into cars and go to Waterford, Clare, Galway. Before like any of us were drinking and you started driving, you would just get into the car and just go to a gig and come back that night. So I think it was more about uh, the atmosphere of gigs, live gigs. And then suddenly we were just playing gigs, you know, our part of that small scene, you know, just playing around. But we were only kids at the time, so it was just really enjoyable. Um, even with Emperor of Ice Cream, we had no interest in chase in anything to do with that. We just loved going in every night and playing together. Friends would call in, we'd all sit around. And it could go from trying to write a song to just basically sitting around, you know, chanting mantras and stuff like this and having a laugh. So it was all very relaxed. It, it never was a thing of chasing it. But I suppose Cork kind of took off a little bit in the early 90s. There was just a lot of really good bands around. There was a great atmosphere. Um, Ireland was in a, posi- a place where it was changing. Do you know, like maybe from 1998 onwards in the European Championships. And I remember like people being inside in Henry's and in 1990 World Cup, there was just like the whole of Ireland, I think, was changing. And it had a bit of confidence in itself, maybe, you know. Um, I don't know if that made a difference to us, but it like... There just seemed to be a great atmosphere around. Um, I thought everyone was kind of rushing towards 1999, you know, and and enjoying it. You know, there was so much music, so many types of music. You had brand new genres just coming out of nowhere and lifting, coming to the top like indie music was. You had, you know, Nirvana, Mercury, Rev, uh, My Bloody Valentine, all these bands, Jesus and Mary Chain, Primal Scream, that suddenly were, you know, becoming do you know uh mainstream bands and then you had dance music jungle indie or ambient um everything it was just so much seemed to be happening at the time and cork seemed to be embracing it i think maybe all of it i guess it's hard to actually imagine what it was like at the time you know rather than actually looking back i mean did it actually feel like cork was this really really exciting place or was it you know that same idea of like why does almost any band um start you know it's it's like even the Fontaines DC today would be singing about you know it's just to make a lot of money and try and leave the place and kind of get out of the sticks like was that the mentality as well or were you actually like fucking hell we've got some great stuff going on here lads don't we I think sometimes it the way it happened was like you might play a few gigs and people were starting to turn up and then suddenly you were like oh, okay, we can put on gigs, but we used to spend nearly every penny we made on, like, lights. And, like, you'd you'd go to Henry's and you'd see brilliant new young bands coming out of Dublin, Power of Dreams, bands coming down from Northern Ireland, bands coming in from America. And, like, as I said, we'd go up to where the Shanks were growing up and we'd see all the best of the Irish bands. There was a big venue there that used to have um, Subterraneans and The Whipping Boy and, uh, you know, all bands like this that... When they put on a show, it was just unreal. But we were younger than them. So I think we were kind of coming at it definitely from a more innocent place. But um, once Emperor of Ice Cream started and Graham joined the band, Graham was only 16 at the time and was already a phenomenal guitar player. He could have played with any band, you know, as in, I mean, big, big bands. He was just... He was great to be around, great ideas. And then when... You know that thing with a band anyway, if you get four people inside in a room who just kind of love being in the room together playing then I think that's and if it starts to work then you're you're kind of you hit the ground running you know um 
we definitely didn't overthink those things too much. We just enjoyed them. And it, you were always looking for like the Liberty in Cork was an unbelievable place to go to. You go in and everyone would bring their tapes in and that there were li- music they were listening to at home. So every night you were hearing new music you'd never heard before. There definitely was something in Cork. And now I didn't know much about, I think maybe as well, MTV started at the same time. So there was loads happening in Cork. And then you could come home and you could turn on this music channel that had the Beastie Boys and, you know, just endless amounts of great music that you were starting to learn about the world, fashion, music from everywhere. There just seemed to be, I think, music in general. As at the start of the 90s was really, really, no, it, it, music has always been there. But for for me, anyway, it was just starting to uh, blow my mind a little bit, you know. Um, the, the, the fun that you could have, the friends that you could make, the gigs that you could go to. Um, you know, being able to go see Sonic Youth and Nirvana one night and a week later you had Sisters of Mercy, a week later you had Pavement. It was just an endless stream of great gigs were coming to Cork because of some great promoters as well that made a difference, you know? Yeah. Would you have been part of that kind of uh, group who would have gone to Henry's every night? What would have been the best gig that you've seen there? We started to sneak into Henry's when we were 15 or 16 because I'd left school at 15 and I didn't drink so that we were... You know, you could go up to the bouncers and say, look, we're only getting a Lucasade. And down before it was a, a house venue or a, a dance venue or it became more like that. They used to show, uh, they had a big projector down the back and it was just all kind of, it was, it was a, the place looked like it was falling apart. But they used to play the Ramones and the Cure. And so like every night of the week, they would show a movie like from a live gig. So you were going in and just soaking in, you know, the music, sitting with your friends. And Cork had a really, Cork had a lovely thing about it, whereas it, it had, you know, the punks would hang around with the Cure Heads, the Cure Heads would hang around with the Modis. It, everyone kind of just, I think just, was, you know, was enjoying it. And, um, but the best gig, I suppose, um, I'd say it had to have been really uh, Sonic Youth Nirvana was just amazing. Or Mercury Revan Roller Skate Skinny. Kevin Shields was doing the sound for Roller Skate Skinny and the sound was just dripping off the ceiling. It was absolutely fantastic in there. The place was rammed. Uh, Mercury Rev had the original singer after just coming out with their first two albums and they were just unreal as well. So I'd have to say maybe Mercury Revan Roller Skate Skinny was, it just blew me away. But every week there were some fantastic bands playing. It would be you know, I think we were, uh, it was just unreal to be around that time. You were privileged, you felt privileged to be, you'd meet someone on the street and they say, oh, there's a gig on tonight and you wouldn't have known. And suddenly you go in and just see this band that you'd never heard of, you know, L7 or, you know, some of the great punk bands that came over as well. Yeah, it sounds like it all happened kind of, you know, without any great planning or anything. Like we'll probably refer to the um, Irish Examiner interview that kind of sparked you know, this kind of uh, renaissance of Ember of Ice Cream for you guys a few times. But in it, uh, Ed Power says that Cork was Ireland's answer to Manchester. Like, it doesn't sound like there was anybody who was actually trying to make that happen, that was actually pushing certain things to try and get certain results. It just sounds like, oh, look, we've we've suddenly got a good venue with good promoters who are bringing these great bands and suddenly there's uh, great local bands cropping up as well. It sounds like it happened naturally. Yeah, and I, th- I think Cork always had or seemed to, I was only just starting to learn about it, but we went to play our first gigs, uh, even in, in bands before Emperor of Ice Cream and down in the Phoenix, you'd lo- great local gigs and 
great local bands trying things like a cone of water sultans of pings first couple of gigs were like by their second or third gig you had 500 people inside in henry's with football shirts just going crazy you know and then the golden horde would be on next and then the crowd would go crazy even more bats but like um like i remember being at a gig one night with sultans of ping and it was a small little venue in the savoy and they were they were the crowd was falling in over the band because the band was on the same level as the crowd there was no stage really and he got everyone to lie back on the ground and put their feet in the air and he played uh, the turtlefish song and that was the first time that that had happened but it was out of necessity because they were falling in on top of him and then i went to fail it two years later and they were on the bill and when they started playing turtlefish the whole stadium got down on their back and put their legs in the air and you, I remember standing there going, oh, my God, like I remember this happening two years ago and look where it's led, you know. So I think a lot of the, yeah, a lot of it was just people were going out to play music and things just happened. It definitely wasn't. I don't think a lot of bands go out to, you know, say, oh, look, we're going to write songs and get signed. But I do know that if you put a lot of time into it and you're practicing really, really hard, you're playing a lot of gigs, then maybe that's you're hoping then to maybe get out and play more gigs further afield, you know, and and to maybe get your music further afield, especially if, you you know, you're spending every single night working on it. And that's what we I remember just like uh, John Lynch, our original drummer, his dad gave us a room in McCurtain Street uh, up in an attic. And we, we spent three weeks getting it all ready into a practice room. And we just spent every single night there. Now, you, you'd head out to Henry's afterwards to a gig, but you'd probably go back there again afterwards and practice for another few hours it you know once you start putting the time in i think maybe then your your expectations change a little i don't know just because you've got the experience of henry's like was it a late bar there like did it go on until like two or three a.m or was it over much earlier than that no two o'clock and it would it would depend on uh, i suppose the the night the gig on was on like the night nirvana played that definitely went kind of late um nirvana were amazing sonic youth were amazing um and that went a little bit later the house nights used to go till about two o'clock um but i remember one night like the the, the there was a big you know it was a saturday night the place was uh, pumping and michelle smith was uh, in the olymp one in, going for her third olympic gold or something in america so suddenly the music was turned down and a projector came <laughs> or a screen came down and they put on the 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 swimming race with Michelle Smith and the whole place was standing there and then suddenly like she won the race the whole place went crazy they kicked back in the next tune and the place just went berserk and it was the same like with all the big football games everyone would go into Henry's and you'd have 500 people in there sitting down having a beer watching the, the games in the afternoon then you'd head off you might uh, go to the pub and then you'd come back to Henry's that night again you know so it Henry and there was a lot of other venues around Cork, but Henry's at the time, I think just Sean O'Neill and uh, Shane Fitzsimon were bringing such great bands. And Emmett then uh, down in Cork was bringing some great, I'm not sure of his second name again, for some, um, but he was putting on great gigs. And there was just you, you'd go down to the Phoenix and ask for your first gig, you know, and they had a they had a PA system like, you know, two speakers and stuff anyway. And um, so. Yeah, um, Henry's just all, I suppose it just grew and then it just got torn down. <laughs> I think it, it grew too much. Like, I remember going to Henry's one night and the cops were so worried about it that they, like, of what was happening in there that they, now this is nothing to do with the emperors or anything I know, but like, 
they decided they'd put guard cars at either side of the street and then they were going to bring all the guards in and start arresting people as they left Henry's. And all the people who came out early just went down and just turned over the guard cars and started jumping on them. And then the cops would run back down and everything, you know, it just, it, 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 like from my, from being 15 and 16 and going in there to see um, great movies or great films of bands playing, and then the gigs were starting to get better and better. And then I suppose Henry's just evolved again when Greg and Shane started to put on their nights. But they had started off as indie DJs, you know, and then, you know, dance music came. And I definitely think it changed the landscape of everything. Like up up until then, there was rock and roll gigs. Suddenly then people were going to more nights. You know, they were their 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 palette for music was changing. You know, it um, there was so much music coming out, hip hop, dance, everything. That that's why I think the start of the nineties was really exciting. Um, I do think MTV definitely had a lot to do with it as well because you know Ireland had been maybe a little bit backwards till then, um, or kind of had been left behind a little bit. You know, you'd look to England to go play gigs. You'd look to England to go and work in the summer. You'd look to England for for culture. You'd look to America for culture because there was always exciting bands coming out of there. But suddenly, then it was changing. The, the bands that you were going to see in Cork were really interesting. The bands that were coming to Cork were just, you know, would blow your mind. So, yeah, it was nearly like doing a course, you know, uh, in uh, music appreciation for a few years. Um, and we did. We did appreciate it so much. Like what the gig, you come out after a gig going, oh, my God. Like, I mean, the, the night that I saw Sonic Youth, not a lot of people are uh, Nirvana. Not a lot of people knew who they were yet. It was four weeks later that it smells like teen spirit came out on mtv so nobody really knew who they were if you knew what bleach uh, the album bleach then you knew who they were but there was about 600 people in there and only about 15 people danced for nirvana or were hopping around for nirvana and sonic youth were standing next to me like thurston moore and when the gig finished he walked through the kind of security door the exit door and i knew the guy in the door and like nirvana the drummer kicked over the drums the bass player broke his bass kurt cobain then walked off last but he had a little guitar pack on his guitar and as he walked in um murty the drummer from the sultans called me and said you got to come in and see this and i just kind of slipped through the crowd through the exit door and there's about 15 people including sonic youth standing there and kurt cobain was on his knees on the ground and there was blood spitting out of his of his fingers he was just driving the guitar but everyone inside in the venue, all they were hearing was noise. They couldn't see what Kurt Cobain was doing. And it was just about 10, 15 people standing around in awe at what, how he was giving himself over to his music, you know? And you were watching something that, that like, I knew you were watching something special. He just, you know, when you go to gigs and somebody, Joe Strummer used to do with Clash, you know, it's like he plugged into the stage, took all its energy and just became electrified and, Kurt Cobain kind of did it as well, you know, he just changed the whole music scene by just being into it so much. Yeah, I think it was nights nights like that when you went to see gigs and you saw people, the minute that they kicked in, one, two, three, four, and they kicked in, you were just with them on the ride. Whether the gig went well or fell apart, you were going to learn something that night or you were going to see something that night that you just, you'd never see again, you know? Yeah. I guess you've set the scene for us now. So where do Ember of Ice Cream come into the picture? Were you already uh, going concern when Nirvana were playing Henry's? Yeah, I suppose we were. Yeah. Um, 
see the timeline some, sometimes is a bit fuzzy but I know we started off maybe just pra- we did start off for about six or eight weeks just practicing together just for the laugh we didn't have a name for a band uh, we were just just jamming really and somebody asked us to do a gig and came up knocked at the door one night and said can you can you support a band that have come down and there's no support and uh, I think it was a Limerick band called A Touch of Oliver or something like that but we went down to do the gig and we made up a name we improvised scream Eddie had just finished the book I think we went down and played the gig and afterwards there was a rev- someone wrote a review saying if this band don't get signed within a couple of months by the end of the year I'll start drinking so it was Murty McCarthy from the Sultans who's never drank in his life right so and it just came about that I mean we started to play by our third or fourth gig somebody had seen us by the sixth or seventh gig there was a couple of people around wanting to sign us and suddenly we were we were signed and releasing stuff it all kind of happened so quickly like we didn't really have a backlog of songs we just liked playing together so we kind of then had to just kick into gear and that came down to hours then so I think we became a very tight band but we were still only learning who we were over the next two years I suppose we just started to spend time just trying to hone our sound trying to discover what we wanted to do and in some ways it's very hard because there was so much music coming to Cork but once you got into the room by yourself then you just try and you know like, uh, yeah, I think it, it it was all very just natural because we weren't thinking too much about it. It just happened. Like the Sultans would have had a year or two before they got signed to get ready. The Franks had a, a year maybe and then they went off to with Satanta. And both of those bands, when their EPs came back and you heard their first singles, we were all blown away because they'd gone into a studio. They sounded great live, but then they'd gone into a studio with a couple of great producers who really brought out their sound. And I suppose... That was the next thing for us then was to, to, you know, to go and start recording and find out how we sounded. So, yeah, it was kind of a journey of discovery as we were, as we were, you know, starting, you know. Yeah, I guess the story of Cork music is always going to be so, you know, the Franks and the Sultans are going to feature in almost every story. Like uh, that Examiner feature beside the Lee side earlier this year, uh, it's Graham Finn talking and he says on paper, a cork band called emperor of ice cream people thought they must be the sultans of ping or the franken walters the press were definitely thinking cork band quirky name they have to be weird that worked against us a little bit so that's what he said to uh, ed power in that examiner feature would you kind of go along with that did you kind of get lost a little bit i guess in the shuffle between the franken walters and uh sultans of ping at that time do you think well the sultans of ping and the franks both got into the top 20. I think the Franks got to number eight in the English charts. And on the same week, the Sultans got to number 12 or number 16 or something, which I remember watching um, some music show and just going, that is unbelievable. I was so delighted for the lads that, um, do you know, that Cork had gone from, like we used to hang around with all those lads in the Liberty. We were out, do you know, that was that place that we'd go in and listen to tapes every night and stuff like this. And and um so just to see them doing so well and then the sultans were so nice to us we went on tour with them but even in england they would say oh the sultans are you know the sultans had their sound and they'd say oh they're being supported by ember of ice cream but don't be fooled by the name disband or whatever like you know and i did it hold us back oh definitely and we actually uh, i think so and i think we thought about that as well but in another way i mean when I hear other names like 
Arctic monkeys or whatever. Sometimes when you think about them again, you're like, yeah, it's a brilliant name. Um, does it describe their sound? I don't know. You know, it's just that when, uh, like, when all of this happened, when the article was written, I was a little bit surprised. Somebody sent it to me one night. I didn't know the lads were doing the interview. And I read it and I was like, and it's, uh, one or two people texted me and they said, geez, that's a tragedy that you you never got an album out, that you were a week away from doing your album. And I remember saying, uh, emailing one or two friends back and saying, ah, but sure, look, that's years ago and we weren't great and that, that, that. And this two friends emailed back that night and said, when I was 17, we used to go to your gigs and we loved Emperor of Ice Cream. And we loved the name, we loved the sound, we loved that, that, that. So, I, yeah, I mean, as you said, you can get lumped into a, the thing with a funny name from Cork, but nearly every band from Cork, there was a cow in the water, like Five Got Out to the Sea. None Attack was one of the best names I ever heard in my life. And they've just released uh, an album there called Hiding from the Landlord with Five Got Out to the Sea, None Attack and Beethoven, the three kind of late 70s, early 80s punk bands that came out of Cork, uh, post-punk, and they just released that on All City. And I suppose we were hearing all these, like Five Got Down to the Sea was just a brilliant name as well. There was the 3355409s, that was their phone number, so you could ring them for gigs. Do you know, there was things like this where maybe Cork didn't take itself so seriously. Like, even when we say, oh, Cork's the real capital, we're just slagging, or like we were. And like, yeah, I think Cork is a real slagging place anyway. So. It was just that thing of not taking yourself so seriously. And I think that really worked in, in the Franks and the Sultans' favour because they wrote great songs. They were fantastic live. The energy of them was absolutely amazing. And I suppose when we played our gigs in Henry's, we Cork was in that place where people would give you that brilliant, that amazing feedback and that made you then want to even, you know, play harder, try harder, push harder when you played. I, I, you know, no one's going to live gigs at the moment, but back then it just did seem to feel like that there was an amazing energy in the gigs. But I was that age as well, where you were, you know, you really wanted to feed into what they, everyone was doing. Well, I mean, it seems like you got to enjoy the ride as well uh, while it lasted. Like you headed over to London as well and you got to tour the UK. Like, did did it feel like, you know, oh, this is the life, lads, we're, we're making it, we're like living the dream? Well, we, we got a house in England. Sony had looked after us a bit over there. We got onto some nice tours and did, uh, you know, must have toured England three, four or five times in that year, year and a half that we were there. And uh, see, before we had left as well, we had done uh, a couple of gigs with the Mannix, you know, when they had uh, the original guitar player in it. And it was lovely to meet them and they were so nice to us. Like, and... Uh, I think sometimes like when people think rock and roll, they think, you know, that you're in a rock and roll band, you get signed and it's all leather jackets and it's everyone walking around with an attitude. And that didn't feel like that for us at all, because Cork had such a great attitude where all the bands supported each other. No one felt like that they were in, in competition with anyone because everyone had a different sound. And when we went to London, London was slightly more doggy dog, you know, and we were only kids. We had got over there, but we were very lucky. The touring was fantastic. Playing 30 gigs in a row with the Sultans was amazing. Like, I remember just watching them every night and watching Knopf, the singer, and the effort, the energy, the what, the, his stagecraft was just, you know, second to none. He was fantastic. 
and all the bands that we got to we got to play with some kind of punk band from America for about 20 gigs I can't remember their name now but they were fantastic and the energy again off them so every gig you went to you felt like you were learning or I did anyway or just you know just amazed at what what people were doing when they got up there and that they just pushed it and pushed it and just really got into their what they were doing we did a few we recorded in protocol studios over there where my bloody valentine had just done um large sections of loveless uh, boo radley's had just finished an album there so we kind of got to experiment there for a week and and get a couple of songs down then we got to do some demos. Then we went to another studio there, did next EP, and then we got to do the demos with Fast Eddie Clark. So it, I suppose it just felt like an extension of where we had started off, where we was just sit around playing together. And it was this thing of, you know, just still like, where are we going? What are we trying to do here? And just working as hard as you could, really, while you were at it, while you were there. So it was an amazing journey and I loved the time I spent with all the lads over there. You know, we really looked after each other, but um, it was about the work you put in and you just, you know, going out every night and practicing or going out every night playing. Graham Finn in that uh, Examiner article, he kind of, it it seems to come down to this idea that, you know, quote, Sony pulled the plug. Is it, is it as simple as that? Like, was it just label issues that led to the end of the band and, and like, did the band actually end or did you all just kind of, I don't know, drift drift apart or, or what? I The way I looked at it at the time really was, I mean, they had signed us and said, look, we were, were doing a development deal and we had signed for something ridiculous like 68 singles and 10 albums or something over Gee, 50 back. years. This was the deal we did <laughs> back then. And um, so when you when you read that, your eyes are just open going, oh, my God, I've like they really believe in us. I've, we've a career here, you know, I can, we can develop as musicians, we can develop as songwriters, we, you know, and I think we were really excited by that idea. They said, look, you can set up your own label, we can put out your stuff through your label, helping you with our distribution, and all of that sounded exciting, and you were doing it with the friends you grew up with and went to gigs with, so it, it just really, you know, that all was lovely, but we did the three EPs, just about to do the album. And when we were dropped, like basically then you, you kind of do we stay in England or go home? And we, you know, we came home. But the way one way I looked at it, there was a band before it's called the Forget Me Nots with Sony. They were signed for two years. We were signed for two years. Then the Whipping Boy were signed for two years. And we had gone touring with them as well and become really great friends with them. Then Stum were signed for two years. Then Mundy was signed for two years. So to me, it looked like unless you had a big hit somewhere or you were able to break some country, then you wouldn't really be held after the two years. It was like a development deal and they would see what happened. They would just make a decision after two years. Do we keep going with this band or do we just move on? And, you know, when you just I suppose somebody tells you that, you know, you're going to make music for a while and we're going to help you. And then suddenly when you're kind of dropped, you we we all just decided to come home i think and 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 gather ourselves we did one more irish tour we did two more de- lots of demos and um just songs that we had been waiting to do for the album and songs that we'd written in london and that we we were just really excited about going and put, uh, you know putting them on the tape and then suddenly that chance had been taken away from us so we had had the stuff with fast eddie clark and we had then our own stuff that we did with one or two friends, producers in Cork. 
um, Mick Finnegan and Rupert McCarthy Morrow. So we, I think then it was about a year, maybe a year later, and it had just been three or four maybe really tiring years. We put everything into it. Um, the music landscape was chase, changing. You could suddenly pay a DJ instead of paying one DJ and give them a hotel room instead of paying three bands and a sound engineer and giving them a rider and, you know, all this crack. It Suddenly there was a cheaper way of putting on a big night and the music landscape was changing. Do you know, there's a lot more dance music and DJs and than bands suddenly. Like there was a few bands came out of that era, uh, Blur, Supergrass, Oasis, um, and some bands were able to keep going because they had a good following and a good record label that believed in them. But I definitely think suddenly the landscape was wider. You know, you'd hip hop, you had dance, you had, so like, you would suddenly all these things that were going on, whereas just for a little while, um, the gigs were just amazing. You know, it was live bands that just suddenly just rose to the top. You know, you, you'd look at the English charts back then and there was some fantastic indie bands that just wrote amazing um, music and some great producers working, like some of the stuff that Andy Wedderall came out with, soon with My Bloody Valentine, uh, Scream Adelica with Primus Scream. Suddenly you great, really good indie bands with great producers just making their sound like it was like it was a glacier falling on top of you, you know, or like it was just amazing production, I think, for a while on the indie music. Um, but yeah, I think just about the time we broke up, I think it was nearly easier for a venue to hire a DJ than a band. Um, there was the, 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 the tours weren't coming as easily to get. People weren't going to gigs as much. Um, people had just moved on to a different type of music in one way, I think. So, like, when exactly did you come back from London, back to Cork? Like, did you kind of return as conquering heroes? And, like, did you keep, like, playing the gigs? And did you still have the fans? Or did things just kind of naturally dry up? Did people move on? Or what happened? Do you know, if we had had, like, when we played a couple of a gig in London just before we came, or in England, we played a gig, sorry, in Oxford one night, uh, a couple of weeks before we came back. And after we finished the gig, um, I remember this guy came up to us and he said, look, I have a lovely record label here in, in Oxford and would you be into putting out records? I love your stuff. Da, da, da. And I remember one of the lads saying, oh, we're signed at the minute, you know, we're like, so, but thanks. Do you know, thanks a million for being nice and da, da, da. And um, so I suppose if we had maybe, I think maybe it took a lot out of us. And when we came back, we, we did go in and record and stuff. But I think we were just starting to get into other things. Do you know, I had left school when I was 15, so I wanted to go back to college and maybe um, I wanted to get into film and doing maybe um, music videos and documentaries. And I wanted to travel a bit more. Uh, Graham was starting to do stuff with Bass Odyssey. Eddie Butt was doing a little project with a couple of other lads. So... I suppose we'd spent so much time with each other and we were in London, you know, you were just in each other's pockets 24 hours of the day. You were touring together nonstop. If we had still had a little bit, maybe when we got dropped, it took a little bit of the belief out of us. And, but if we had still believed, as I said, there was, there was a few people that wanted to put out our stuff. I think we just kind of ran out of steam a little bit right at the end. But it had been, as, as you were saying, it was a fantastic kind of journey to go on. And especially all the bands that we got to play with. 
I mean, for me, that's what it's always been about, going to see bands, being involved in gigs, watching, you know, being at the side of the stage for a gig, seeing it. And these are things that you can never replicate. So you just feel really privileged to be there, you know, when you're when you're getting to do all this. And for a while, we got to be a part of that as well, um, which was really, really lovely. And the, the album that you, it sounds like, was ready to go. I mean, was that held up by legal difficulties or anything like that? Or was it still like, you know, here, here's your album, lads, you know, do whatever you want. Was Did Sony at least give you that back or was it like legally still theirs and you couldn't do anything with it? Um, I wouldn't be big on the legal end of it, but I do know that when we signed like the record deal, like somebody explained it to me and like uh, the, we had this lawyer, Michael Kennedy over in England who had worked, he had done the stuff with George Michael, you know, against Sony. And then he was also Sony's lawyer. But when we signed our deal, he said, look, this is kind of like the deal that Sinead O'Connor got. If you do well, if, if you do really, really well, you do okay out of this, you know. But if you don't do well, basically they'll kind of own you. And he was kind of saying like, if you write you know, your name or write a letter to someone, they'll basically own that. So I think it's only recent. It just turned out that, you know, when this COVID thing happened and it was Ed Power, wasn't it, who did the article? It was just kind of bizarre that it was around the same. Everything has just lapsed where the music was ours again. We had never discussed this or it was never a plan to go and do this. I hadn't listened to the music in years. Like I have the records in my record collection, but like I haven't played them in 25 years since we the, the time we got them. You know, you make music, you move on to the next project. You don't really go back and listen to records you made or else you're just going to think, oh, I would have done that differently, <laughs> you know. So, um. I think it all is just it's it was just that thing where the music is suddenly the music that we did record years ago was suddenly ours again. Like they didn't own everything we wrote back then. And for the album now, like we're doing kind of five songs that we did as demos, right? You know, that we really enjoy doing and put a lot of effort into. So five of them were kind of recordings from then and Five of them are ones that were re-recording that were on the original EPs that would have gone onto the album, but we never got to re-record them again. So for the last few weeks, we've been piecing all those together. But as I said, this is kind of like this has all happened by accident. There was no plan for this. And, and you know, when it kind of happened and some a few people texted me and said, geez, that's awful that the album never came out. And then when we did start talking and you know because of the article and a few people someone set up a whatsapp group and then about a week or two later graham shared all the old music that we had and john lynch the original drummer and anyone that had tapes of what we did years ago just suddenly threw them all up on whatsapp so i was sitting here one night and i wasn't looking forward to it but i just i made myself kind of open all the things download them all into a file and i listened to the 40 songs over a day I just wrote to Graham saying, I think there's 10 songs there that could make a really, really good album. And maybe we'll have to add a few things to them and do some nice artwork. But we could kind of maybe we could do this, you know, because if you like loads of people had started writing saying, have you some of the songs? Would you put them up? Um, it's an awful pity you didn't make the album. So we just be kind of between us all really in the end, we just decided let's just put 10 songs together that we really think are, you know, a good representation of what we were doing. And then it just worked out that five of them are going to be the ones that we did just at the end and five of them are going to be brand new. Like I've spent the last few days rewriting the lyrics uh, that I wasn't happy with as a kid 25 years ago that I ran out of, you know, I didn't have the chance to write. 
yeah, th- th- I think that's what's made it really exciting recently is that we've reconnected as friends because we'd all gone off and diff- done different projects for years. We've reconnected with the music that I completely forgotten about. But we're also reconnecting it, it with it now in a brand new way. And I'm really excited about it because the two songs that have gone out so far are the ones that we, you know, I think people would maybe connect to uh, quicker. Whereas there's some, some songs in the albums that are darker, heavier, um, faster, you know, just and and some then more melodic as well, but wouldn't be a single material. But when I did when I did find the 10 that I thought were good enough, I was straight on the phone to Graham saying there's actually an album there. And I wouldn't didn't start listening to all the songs thinking I kind of was a little bit uh, <laughs> just afraid. <laughs> Do you know, I wasn't really like uh, excited about listening to all because the minute you start listening back to all recordings, I would always pick out things I thought could have been better. I don't sit back and go, oh, that was amazing. I'm looking for the faults and how would we have made them better? And when I got through the 30 or 40 songs, there was just 10 that stood out and I said, yeah, I'm not embarrassed at all by these. Like they're with a tiny little bit of work and maybe some good mastering. I think we, I, they, I just made up my mind pretty quickly that we had a good album. And you're going to re-record or you're going to record some new lyrics for them and sing them yourself over over the recordings, is it? For some of the songs, is it? No, the five songs that are, let's say the new single that was just out, there has uh, Everyone Looks So Fine. There was uh, there was a break part done, but we, because it was a demo, we'd never really finished it. Graham had thrown, thrown down a lovely kind of little offbeat idea on the acoustic guitar, and but it was never finished. So when the, when the lads decided it was going to be a single, I was already working on a video for it and trying to get just little clips in from friends and family and the whole lot. And I was up in the mountains one day in Comchalon at a glacier lake here in Waterford. And I got a text just as I was walking up the mountain from Graham saying, I've sent you a guitar there and we're going to send this for mastering in about five hours. So if you want to throw an idea on it or a vocal. So I was up the mountains, I had to come back down the mountain, get into the car, drive to the studio, listen to it a few times listen to the lovely new melodies Graham had put down the guitar and I just got a couple of words that I think uh, reflected what the song was about but also maybe what we were trying to do with I don't know uh, with the video and with the music it kind of all just seemed to work for one moment and two hours later or four hours later I sent it to him and said okay and to all the lads and said what do you think and they were like cool done wicked so what's happening now I think with the album is is it's kind of like there was there's new bass lines thrown on two of the songs that are going out on um with the five original recordings there's a couple of new vocals on those but it's little breaks that we never got to finish our little ideas so we're just kind of teasing out ideas for those between ourselves and then we're re-recording the other half of the album which was the songs that would have been on the eps years ago but because they were on the eps when we would have gone to thundam for the album we had this idea in our head that we were going to do them very differently anyway um so now's our chance um so i've got to work on the lyrics which is lovely i was working on those now for the last few nights and i'm going to record those tomorrow graham is finishing the guitars tonight and tomorrow and then the drums Cullum did them in amsterdam with uh, the engineer from pavement and eddie did the bass in cork then and um, so we've just been flying around the ideas together and getting it all sorted but Hopefully in the next week, all the recordings should be in and then it goes to New York to be mixed and mastered, I think. 
it sounds like an exciting time and that you're excited uh, for it. I imagine that it's not like it's not quite like back in 1992 when you would have been in your in your late teens, early 20s. But it's still nonetheless must be a, a nice feeling. It's all quite surreal still to me. And I think it was only like eight, nine weeks ago that Ed did the article. So since then, it's really been just about reconnecting with it and trying to, once we decided that we were going to do it, then it was picking the songs. So we had some real nice chats about that. And I think we were nearly all down to the same 11 straight away. And then it was just deciding, do you know what 10 were going on it? Then once we had decided that we were going to record five of them again, it was just getting that going. And just for me over the years, from from all the other music that I've 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 been lucky enough to all the other artists I've been lucky enough to work with, um, especially since I came to Waterford. But it really is about, you know, first of all, it has to be about getting it sounding right. And at the moment, I think we are like I love the bass that Eddie's been throwing down. They sound like he really has just got into where he was 25 years ago on them. He always had a little punky kind of like mad comic book like sound that was just I loved and um Graham as I said was one for me one of the most exciting and he is still one of the most exciting guitar players that ever like the stuff he's doing at the minute with with Ken Griffin um the high leaves over New York is just phenomenal so I think it really is now about making it sound the best we can because this is our chance and the only chance to do what we were going to do 25 years ago it's not the way we would have you know thought about it first because it's 25 years later but it's fantastic trying to finish it and then put the ribbon on the box to, to, to get the artwork right. Right at this moment, for me, it's just getting it sounding right, getting the right, uh, you know, the, the right ideas that we'd that that I would have wanted on it. And so, yeah, it's 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 interesting trying to get into that frame of mind of where we were 25 years ago. But we've spent so much time talking now and working on the new stuff that I'm kind of in it right now, which is very exciting. And I'm just really looking forward to kind of just getting it right. Like if we can get it sounding right, then it can have its own life after that. But for me now at the minute, it's about making it with the lads, about working with them again. And like this was an opportunity we never talked about or never saw coming. As as, as some of my friends said, just to be able to, like when they were saying, you know, it was an awful pity or a tragedy that the album didn't come back out, out back then. For me, I suppose, yeah, when I thought about it, it was like, well, I suppose it was. And now you get the chance to do it, which is kind of pretty mind blowing to me at the mo- right at this moment. Anyway, it is. Um, and I can't wait to get it back in a few weeks once it's all down, once all the, the, the ideas are down and it all starts to come together. Yeah, it's it's kind of like what we were saying uh, earlier about the cork scene. You know, it wasn't planned or anything. It just kind of happened. And that's kind of what it sounds like with you guys right now. I mean, granted, it's happening in a global pandemic that nobody could have predicted. But just the article coming out, you guys kind of maybe not having your usual routine to do. And just the fact that, you know, it's no bother you being in three or four uh, different cities all around the world you can still send each other files and you can still talk to each other every every minute on the phone, like rather than, you know, any other way that it would have been like even 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It's the right the right time, isn't it? Well, the, the last year or two, I've been working on an awful lot of projects with people where I can't be in the same city as them. So like I might sit here at night and I might throw together some samples or some some ideas 
um, throw down one or two little vocal ideas or something and then but I'll leave it really bare and like there's a project I'm working on with a guy called Marco Bell down in Wexford um, he used to play with Nanu Nanu and a few bands like this but he uh, he's just so talented and I send him like the bare bones of an idea and then he adds to them and then that builds up from there and then like last night he texted me and he said i'm just sending you on something there and it was just this amazing piece of music now it nearly to me already it nearly sounds finished but i was like look maybe i'll do a vocals and some drums on it and maybe a bass and so like i might go to the studio for that tonight or i'll do half it at home here so it it really is as you said it's lovely to be able to reconnect uh, or to connect with people to do that Um, the new band the clouds album i decided like the first album I wanted to be about stories and poetry and ambience. The second album I wanted it to be about songs. The third album I wanted it to be about beats and all the ideas from the first two albums. So I started working with uh, uh, a producer over or a, a music maker who makes techno over in Munich, who I saw him play one night in Dublin. And I just wrote to him and said, look, I write these songs. I'm kind of trying to come up with something mad to do with them. Are you interested? So for the last three years, we've been sending each other ideas. So that album is nearly finished. And so like, I do hope that like, um, at some stage with the lads, when we do meet up to have a point about this, that we can just go get a room somewhere with loads of instruments and have a laugh for a while and play some music like we did in the old days and just sit around and have a beer and, and kind of laugh at the whole thing and celebrate it as well. You know, just celebrate the fact that 25 years later, we're all still around. 25 years later, we're all still making music. And 25 years later, life is still surprising me, you know, um, that, that something like this could have happened, you know. As you said, uh, with technology, you can kind of do anything now. Like Graham wrote to me last night with little ideas. And it's, it's just fantastic that if he's sitting at home and he feels like, oh, I have something here. And I think John really needs to hear it now that he can just plug in the amp, you know, and just send me on an idea straight away and then I could be pottering around the house with the headphones on listening to it going okay what am I going to do with this you know and and that's what music is all about really isn't it kind of being excited by ideas and sharing them and um, bringing them together to try and create something like I do think the music landscape has changed an awful lot I think there's so many people out there who just make music for the love of it and when we started that's exactly what I saw in my head is all my friends around me were making music for the love of it and not with any grand plan, you know, our, um, our grand destination. It was just about, it's just about sitting around with your friends playing music. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's as good a place as any to leave it. I suppose I, we, we've chatted for long enough. I could have asked you a million more questions about Cork back then, about everything that you've done in between. But um, it's it's great to see uh, Emperor of Ice Cream on, on this side of things where you're on the brink of releasing your album again. So best of luck with that. I look forward to listening to it when it's uh, all done and just congratulations on getting it all, getting it done and just reconnecting with the with the lads and, you know, becoming friends again and everything. Owen, it was a pleasure talking to you, man. It really was, actually. Mm -hmm.